You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. bow together in prayer before we begin. Father, it is our desire to hear you speak in your word to our hearts and to our minds. We pray that you would address our intellect, our emotions, our spirit in such a way as to create in us hearts of obedient servants. We pray that we may come to see Christ in an all new way and, and come to trust you in an all new way, in a fresh way this morning. We ask your blessing upon this time that you would send your spirit to be our teacher and our guide and make your word the center of our focus this morning. For Christ's sake and in his name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Turn now in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. To Ecclesiastes chapter 12. The last, the final, the concluding, the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. Wow, you say, I've been waiting a year to hear you say that. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. That's going to be our text for this morning. Last week we were talking at the end of chapter 11 about what it means to rejoice in the days that God has given to us. Those who are old among us or older among us can rejoice in the length of our days. Those of us who are younger can rejoice in the strength of our days. But in all of the days that God has given to us, there is something in them that is worthy of us rejoicing. And after the message last week, my wife said to me that that was actually the first message in Ecclesiastes that left her depressed. Which tells me that she hasn't been listening to the messages for... At least a year. Somebody had to say that. But if you thought that last week was my peak of discouragement, I'm glad that you are here today. Because on this, the Sunday prior to Thanksgiving, just like on the Sunday of Mother's Day, we are going to talk about death and dying. Because nothing, and I do mean nothing, puts us in the mood for fun and family and food, fellowship and football, like a message on death and dying just prior to Thanksgiving. So we're looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 12, and we're going to be covering verses 1 through 8 of this book. And this is kind of a longer passage that's before us, and it, it could be, I think, divided up into two sections, but I wanted to handle it all in, in one piece because I, I want to get to the end of Ecclesiastes, but that's not the only reason. Verses 1 to 8 really is one unit of thought, and it's all kind of describing the same thing. And though it looks like a passage that's longer than what we might typically take on a Sunday morning, you'll see as we get into it that there's not a lot that needs to be explained or addressed as we work our way through the text. And once you kind of catch on to what Solomon is doing in these verses, the explanation of it kind of, it kind of flows rather quickly, and we're able to kind of go through the text uh, rather quickly. So that's what we're going to do this morning, verses 1 through 8. And I want to just you to observe the structure. And as we read the passage together, I'm going to highlight the structure so you can see it. Beginning in verse 1, verses 1 to 5 describes old age and aging. Verse 1, remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the, days, before the evil days come and the years draw near, when you will say, I have no delight in them. Before the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are darkened and clouds return after the rain. In the day that the watchmen of the house tremble and mighty men stoop, the grinding ones stand idle because they are few, and those who look through windows grow dim. And the doors on the street are shut as the sound of the grinding mill is low, and one will arise at the sound of the bird, and all the daughters of song will sing softly. 
Furthermore, men are afraid of a high place and on terrors on the road. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags himself along, and the capperberry is ineffective. For man goes to his eternal home while mourners go about in the street. Those five verses, Solomon is describing old age and its effects. And then in verses 6 through 8, he is describing in poetic language death. Verse 6, remember him before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed. The pitcher by the well is shattered and the wheel at the cistern is crushed. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. So here at the end of his speech, which concludes with chapter 12, verse 8, Solomon comes back to where he started, which was everything is vanity. And here in chapter 12, as we approach the end of the book, Solomon concludes Ecclesiastes with an honest and frank description of old age and dying. Uh, just as all of life, uh, Solomon has, has uh, covered all of life in the book of Ecclesiastes, he ends Ecclesiastes where all of us end our life, at death, at the very end. And so it's fitting that he would conclude with this extended discussion and description of old age and dying. And, and if you'll notice that chapter 12, verse 1 begins with remember. And last year, last week, you remember that there were two other remembers that we were to remember. You remember that? We were to remember in verse 8. Let me get back to chapter 11. We remember in verse 8 the days of darkness that they will come. That is, we are to remember or keep before our eyes the reality of our death. We are to remember in verse 9 that God will bring us to judgment for all of these things. And then chapter 12, we are to remember something else. And that is, we are to remember our Creator in the days of our youth. Now, you'll notice in, as we were reading through those verses that there was a lot of language that maybe sounded a bit odd to you. As you were reading through that, did you wonder, what are the mighty men? What are the grinders? Those who look through windows grow dim. What is that? The grasshopper drags himself along. What in the world is Solomon describing in this passage? This, at first blush, doesn't make any sense to us at all. You'll see that it does make perfect sense because this is a poem. It's Hebrew poetry, and Solomon is describing in very poetic language and very symbolic language what it means to grow old and what it is like to grow old and what it is like to face death. And so there, there are some symbols here, and one of the challenges that we face is trying to discern what it is that Solomon means by the symbol that he uses. So when he talks about the mighty men stooping or the, the watchman of the house trembling, what is it in the physical realm that Solomon is pointing to? What is it that the analogy is analogous to? And there's, an, there's an, a degree of subjectivity to that. Like when we read this, Solomon doesn't say, by this I mean this. He doesn't spell that out. So we have to look at what Solomon says, and then we have to ask ourselves, what is he pointing to? What is, what is this an analogy describing in the physical realm? And as we work our way through it, I think we'll kind of catch on to what Solomon is doing here. And you'll see as we work our way through this that it begins to click and you start to say, okay, I see, I see what he's describing here. I see what this is analogous to. So let's begin in chapter 12, verse 1. Uh, though there is an element of subjectivity here, as we work our way through it, we're going to, I'm going to try and, and build the case for what Solomon is describing with this poetic language. Chapter 12, verse 1 says, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. And when Solomon says remember here, he's not, he's not talking about merely giving a hat tip to God, as if in the days of our youth we just have to say, Yep, I remember the Lord is there. Yep, it's good. Yep, we got it. I got this. The Lord's got His thing. I'll serve Him when the time comes. Uh, right now I'm living my life and doing my thing, and right now I'm involved in this, but I'm just, I know that God is there, and I know that He's the ever-present big man in the sky. One of those annoying and blasphemous things I think can be possibly said of God, but that's the attitude of most people, right? I know that God is there, and He's got my back, and I'm doing my thing. Solomon's not talking about that kind of remembering. When he says up in verse 8, remember the dark days that are coming, what he means is those days of death that are ahead for all of us, 
You need to take the acknowledgement of that and set it before your eyes so that you are always looking at and thinking of and considering that. You live your life in light of your death. That's what he means. So that this realization of what we are remembering affects and determines all of how we live. And so when he says that we are to remember that God will bring us to judgment for these things, verse 9, we are to know that. Solomon means you take that truth, that realization, and you set it before your face so that that governs your conduct. It governs the way that you live your life all the way through your life. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. That means young person, now while you are young, you set before your eyes your creator and what he demands of you and what he expects of you, and you live your entire life in light and in view of that so that we bring God into all of our consideration, we bring God into all of our planning, into our relationships, into our marriages, into our finances, into everything that we do. We set our Creator before us, and we never depart from that. Now Solomon is telling us to do something that he didn't do. Because when he was young, Solomon set his Creator before his eyes. But then Scripture says that when Solomon became old, he turned his heart away from the Lord and was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God like his father David had been. And what was it in Solomon's life that had, that had done that? that had turned his heart away from his God. It was his many foreign wives and their idols. In 1 Kings 11 verse 4 it says, When Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away from, uh, from the Lord after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord as his father David's had been. And that's a tragic tale that Solomon in his older years began because of his wife and the influences of those wives. He began to actually fund idolatry and build temples in the land of Israel to foreign gods because his wives had that influence on him. So Solomon started off well, but he never finished well. And when we talk about setting God before us and before our eyes while we are young, we are talking about living in light of that for all of our lives. So that becomes the, the, the starting point, and it becomes then for us the ending point. So maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, but I'm not young, and I've never set God before my eyes. And here I am old, I'm, I'm, I'm closer to the end of my life than I am to the beginning of my life, and I've never given God a thought, I've never given consideration, I've never lived my life in light of that. I have nothing but the older years of my life to offer to the Lord. I've given all of my younger years to my flesh and doing my own thing and living my own way. What should I do? You should realize that today you are younger than you will be tomorrow, so you remember your Creator in the days of your youth. That would be today. Today is the day of salvation. Today, God offers you clemency, he offers you forgiveness in the person of Christ on his terms. That is repentance and faith. And you can still turn to the Lord today before it is too late. Tomorrow might be too late. Psalmist says we are to remember or set before our eyes in such a way that it might govern our conduct all the way through our lives, our creator. You know, at first that blush, that kind of seems like a very impersonal way to refer to God, does it not? I mean, he's all of our creator. He, he's the creator of the unbeliever and the believer alike. He's the creator of the animals and human beings. Why is it that Solomon would use such a generic and seemingly impersonal word to refer to God when he could have used another Old Testament word like, remember Jehovah your righteousness in the days of your youth, or remember Jehovah your provider in the days of your youth, or your rock, or your fortress, or your shepherd, or your healer, or your deliverer, or your mighty tower. He could have used any one of those names or analogies for God. But instead, in a very generic way, he speaks of God as our creator. And I think intentionally, this this I think this indicates two things. Number one, there is in Solomon, even as the aged Solomon and the cynical Solomon, there is this distance between him and God that he recognizes here. I don't think Solomon, even at the end of his age, we're going to talk about this more next week, even at the end of his days, as he writes Ecclesiastes, I don't think Solomon was somebody who felt near to God after everything he had done and been through. I don't think this is repentant Solomon. I think this is Solomon describing God exactly in terms of, of how he viewed God at this time. God was his creator. And that was, I think, as close and as personal as that relationship 
between God and Solomon got at this stage. And I think he is saying to the young people, do not make the mistake that I made. Do not allow your heart to drift to this point. Remember your creator while you are young. Come to him and believe upon him and trust in him and live in obedience to him. Fear God and keep his commandments because this is the whole duty of man. Don't make my mistake. And the second thing I think that this indicates is that there, there is for us the realization that when God is called the creator, that intimates that he has certain demands and that he has certain expectations and he has certain rights to us. So it is appropriate for us to think of God as our creator in the sense that because he created me, he owns me, and he can demand my obedience, and he can demand my servitude. That is his prerogative because he is my creator. And so in remembering him, I am remembering his position of sovereign authority in my life as my king, as my God, as my creator, as the one who has every right to demand obedience of me. And so Solomon can say, remember your creator in the days of your youth. We are to do this, Solomon says, before something. The, the word before occurs in your English translation three times. Once in verse 1, you remember your creator in the days of your youth, before something happens. Once in verse 2, at the beginning, before the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are darkened. And then down in verse 6, remember him before the silver cord is broken. Now Solomon is contrasting here the days of our youth with the days of our old age. And there is something that is coming, Solomon says, and you should remember your creator before these days arrive when it might become too late or you might be unable or your heart might be hardened by sin to the point where you, you cannot and you will not turn because it's too late to humble yourself then. You remember your creator in the days of your youth before certain things happen. And what is it? Verse 1, before the evil days come and the years draw near when you say, I have no delight in them. Evil days is not a moral designation there. The word that's translated evil speaks of something that is a disaster an injury or a misfortune. It's not describing a moral quality. It's describing a, a disastrous quality before there are days come that are filled with one disaster after another. These are evil days. Uh, notice that Solomon is very honest about what it is like to grow old and what old age is like. He calls them evil days. We can just call them evil days, right? Some of you are in evil days. Some of you are entering into evil days. Some of you are looking forward with great expectation to evil days. Some of you, for some of you, evil days are a long ways away. And that doesn't mean you have nothing to worry about. It just means that you should expect that the evil days are going to come. Days of disaster, days of, of injury, days when things are not as easy as they used to be and not as fun as they used to be, which is why Solomon describes those days as days in which we say, I have no delight in them. It doesn't mean that we cannot rejoice, as we talked about last week, in the length of our days or the fact that God has given them to me. But taking delight in the days that we live in old age takes more effort and energy than delighting in things are when we're young. When you're 22, it's easy to delight in everything, okay? Everything is a delight. Everything is a new experience. You get to go new places, see new things, experience new things, meet new people. Then you get to be 40 or 45, and you realize that suddenly everybody you meet reminds you of somebody else. You feel like you've met everybody in the world, right? Don't they remind you of so-and-so? Don't they look like so-and-so? Don't they sound like so-and-so? And then you start to feel like that, that things get even worse after that. And so you enter into the evil days when this one misfortune after another. These are dark days, and, and Solomon is honest about that. It's, they're days in which you say, I have no delight in them. You wake up in the morning, it's not as enjoyable as waking up in the morning when you're 21. When you're 81, it takes more effort. It takes more effort to get dressed. It takes more effort to have fun. It takes more effort to recover from having fun right, than it did when you were 21. You could recover from having fun in a couple hours and be ready to go back out on the field and do it again. But, but not when you're 81. And, and Solomon says, these are the days in which you might say, I have no delight in these things. Because taking delight in them takes a lot more energy and a lot more work than it used to. 
to delight in those days. Remember your creator before those days come and look at verse two, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened. That's apocalyptic language. If you've read through the Old Testament prophets, and I could give you a number of references, but I'll just quote Joel chapter three, verse 15. The sun and the moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. What is Joel describing in that passage? The day of the Lord. Now you read through the Old Testament prophets and here's what they, on that day, on that final day when God wraps everything up, on, on creation's final day, before we enter into that day of God's final justice and the recreation of the new heavens and new earth, when, when it's all winding down and the curtains on the stage of humanity are closing and all the actors step out to take their bow and it's all over with, how, does, how do the Old Testament prophets describe that? The sun will be darkened, the moon will be darkened, the stars will be darkened, all of creation begins to dim. It's as if somebody is shutting down all the lights of the stage at the end of creation. Solomon uses that type of language that describes the end of everything to describe the end of your everything. The sun is darkened, and the moon is darkened, and the stars are darkened. Pretty soon everything becomes dark. It is as if the winding up of creation is in itself the ultimate fulfillment of the winding up of each and every one of us. And the sun in the book of Ecclesiastes is mentioned 34 times, and here it is mentioned for the very last time. Aren't you glad that you don't have to read or hear about everything being under the sun again? Because as we've gone through Ecclesiastes, we've seen that under the sun is always that way of talking about the toil and the vexation. We work under the sun. We labor under the sun. We get weary under the sun. We are tired under the sun. Everything is meaningless and futile under the sun. And then we get to the end of Ecclesiastes, and we finally read the very last reference to the sun. And is it positive or is it negative? No, no, no. As we read through the book of Ecclesiastes, we want to at some point say, would you stop talking about the sun? Okay, Solomon says, I'll stop talking about the sun. Just one more time. Eventually the sun's going to be darkened and you're going to die. That's the last reference to the sun. You want no more sun? You want an end to the vexation and the futility and the vanity and the toil? Well, there'll become a point, there'll come a time when the sun is darkened and the stars and the light and the moon are all darkened and then look at that next phrase in verse 2, the clouds return after the rain. That's odd language. Usually we think of clouds coming before the rain, right? Why would Solomon say the clouds return after the rain? Do you remember last spring when it was so wet and rainy and it rained for like 900 days straight with never a break in it? It was just rain and rain. And we had the mudslides and the trains derailed and we couldn't find a place to put all the water. Do you remember that? We were thankful at first that it just wasn't snowing and we didn't have to shovel it, but eventually we got tired of the rain and just as it would almost look like it was going to stop raining, what would happen? The clouds would move in, right? So it gets done raining or it rains, and then the clouds come back after the rain. What Solomon is describing is this, this rolling in of one disaster, one darkening event after another. And this is an honest description of old age. It's the clouds returning after the rain is done pouring. And we use the phrase today to, to say, when it rains, it pours. And we t speak of the rain and the never-ending rain and the clouds returning after the rain to describe one disaster after another. And that's what Solomon is, is talking about here. When you're old and you get sick, just about the time you get over being sick, you injure something. Because right? you were sick and all you had was a cough. But then in all, in all your coughing, you threw a rib out or threw your back out. And so now your back is hurting. And just about the time you get done with that, you feel weak, and it takes you a while to recover from the weakness of the back being injured. And just about the time you get done with that, you injure yourself again. And, and then in that injury, you, you are exposed to something, you go to the hospital to fix that, and you get exposed to something that makes you sick. And so it's one illness after an injury, after a weakness, after sickness, after injury, after a recovery period of time. Just when the clouds, just when the rain stops falling, another cloud comes in. And you say, I didn't have this issue a month ago, but now I have yet another physical ailment that I have to deal with. That's the clouds returning after the rain. This is why Solomon calls them dark days. 
These are the dark days that come. And there's, there should be something in us that is sympathetic to those who have to go through those dark days and live with one dark day and one cloud after another, rolling in right after it gets done raining. In all of these verses and in verse, well, in verses 1 and 2, Solomon is describing there a period of time, the type of days, that what it's like to live in that period of time. But now in verses 3 to 5, Solomon moves on to describing the individual who is in those dark days. So look at verse 3. In that day, we are to remember our creator in the days of our youth before these things happen. And in that day, that is in the dark day, the watchmen of the house tremble. What is that referring to? The watchmen of the house tremble. He's using an analogy. He's using a, a poetic imagery to describe something shaking. What would be, what would be shaking? What are the watchmen of the house? The, the watchmen, the, the responsibility of the watchman was to guard something, to protect it and to keep it. So he's describing here an estate or a house. And there were men whose job it was to hold a buckler or a shield and a sword and to offer protection and to defend the people in the house or maybe even to defend themselves. And so what is it about our bodies that it defends ourselves and others? What is it that we use for that? We use our hands. So what are the watchmen of the house? Most people believe this, Solomon is describing the arms and the hands, which with age begin to shake and tremble. We're not as steady as we used to be, right? Begin to shake uncontrollably, and we can't, we can't stop that. And that's not to mock that. That's just to, Solomon is indicating here, there are dark days coming when we shake and tremble like we never shook and trembled before. Those are the watchmen of the house, the guards, the protectors of the house. They begin to shake, and they begin to shake uncontrollably. And then look at verse number two, the second one there in verse uh, three. The mighty men stoop. What are the mighty men? Some people think this refers to the legs that with age become bent. Some people think that it refers to the spine. Mighty men stand up straight and they're alert and their heads are up and their backs are straight. There's coming a day when the mighty men begin to stoop. They, they lean over and they hunch over. When I was a kid, I, I remember one of the last images that I have of my great-grandmother was, was seeing her all hunched over. And she became so weak and so frail that, that one of the very last things that she did was break a rib picking up a rock, a small rock in the garden. And it broke her ribs. And she ended up breaking ribs. Every time she would pick something up, it would, it would bust one of her ribs. And I remember seeing her in her final days, and she was hunched over. Her spine was curved. And as a kid, my aunts and uncles used to slap me around and say, stand up straight or you're going to grow up and your back will always be curved. And I used to look at Grandma and think to myself in my young mind, why doesn't somebody slap Grandma and tell her to stand up straight? <laughs> it's because she couldn't. There came a point where she, the, the mighty men began to stoop, and you can't stand up straight. I don't know what goes on there that causes that. But you can't fault grandma for that. This is just a physical deterioration that, that hunches her over and she can't stand up anymore. That's the mighty men. They begin to stoop. Verse 3, the grinding ones stand idle because they are few. What is it about your body that grinds things? In those days, the grinding ones would be the people who ground the grain and the corn and the wheat and, and the beans and things of that nature. They would grind them and turn them to, to powder. What is it that grinds your food? Your teeth, Right? The grinding ones stand idle because they are few. I didn't say anything funny. I'm just reading the text. The grinding ones stand idle because they are few. And in antiquity, do you realize that dental hygiene is a, is a relatively modern phenomenon? The idea that you could die at 80 or 90 years old with all of your own original teeth in your mouth that's a, modern, that's a modern phenomenon in the history of humanity. In, an, in times of antiquity, 
We see pictures of men in the 1500s and the 1400s, or uh, yeah, pictures or drawings of men, or we see actors acting out the position of kings and nobles in the 1300s, and they have all of their pearly white teeth. They look like they just had them whitened at the dentist. What a facade that is. What a ruse that is. It was almost unheard of for somebody to die at a ripe old age with all their own teeth because the teeth begin to fall out. They didn't do dental hygiene like we do dental hygiene. So the grinding ones, they stand idle. You don't chew your food like you used to. Now you drink your food because the grinders are few. They've fallen out. That's the evil days. Those who look through windows grow dim. What does that refer to? Yeah, your eyes. Your eyes, they begin to grow dim. You start to get old and you get cataracts. And it clouds your vision. And that in itself begins to darken the sun and the moon and the stars, right? You don't see things as clearly as you used to see. You begin to lose your sight over a period of time. The imagery is of those who look out through the windows seeing everything clearly. Pretty soon the windows become dim. The windows of your soul, the windows of your mind and of your life, they grow dim with cataracts or bad vision that begins to cloud the way that you once saw things. A few years back, about 10 years ago, I started to become quite disturbed by the fact that the, the road signs were not as clear as they once were while we were driving down the road. And Deidre began to comment on the fact that I couldn't read a road sign until it was almost past. Fortunately, I'm a pretty fast reader, so I could catch things as they were going by. But then it got even worse at night, and I used to think to myself, there must be something about the font uh, that they're using on the street signs now that is different than it was when I was a kid. And you know, I had to get glasses so that I could see things further away. That was not something I enjoyed doing. I had... Up until that point, I was born with perfect vision, and I had perfect vision up until a few, few years ago. And speaking of font, when did we decide that it was okay to start printing everything smaller? <laughs> On the packages and the flyers and the newspaper and everything, it's all printed much smaller today. And they say that you can get glasses that will help you read that now as well. But I think it's a conspiracy. The people who are selling the glasses are the ones printing everything smaller. <laughs> and so we ought not to fall into that trap. I don't know where we were at in this. <laughs> Those who look through windows grow dim, and the doors on the street are shut as the sound of the grinding mill is low. The picture is if you're sitting in a house there and your, your, your door opens up to the street, and you can hear out in the marketplace the, the sound of the mill as it is grinding the flour. You can hear the sound of the marketplace as things are being exchanged and people are bustling by and people are singing and talking and doing commerce outside of your house. And then when, and, and all of that noise is coming into your home, but then you shut the doors and what happens to the noise? It, it becomes muted. It's quieted. So it grows dim and you can't hear that anymore. The, the sound is muted and it grows low because you have shut the doors. What is that describing? I can't hear anymore, right? I can't hear like I used to hear. So now my wife says something in the other room, and we can't, I can't understand what she's saying. But then there's this, this cruel, oppressive irony that is described in the very next phrase. One will arise at the sound of a bird. So I can't hear anything, but a bird will wake me up in the morning. Can somebody explain that to me? What is Solomon describing there? The fitfulness of sleep. It's a cruel irony that you can't hear, I can't hear my wife talking to me in the bed next to me, but at 4.30 in the morning, when a bird chirps four doors away, I hear that, and I'm up for the rest of the day. And as much as you might want to sleep, you can't sleep, because your sleep becomes fitful the older that you get, and, the, and you sleep less. You sleep for less periods of time, but then during the day, when you should be your most productive, what do you want to do? You want to sleep, right? And you can sleep solidly then, can't you? Just not at night. Uh, cruel irony. So the doors are shut and everything becomes low. 
quieter to you. You arise at the sound of a bird. And the last one in verse 4, and all the daughters of songs sing softly. What is he describing there? It could be describing, again, the loss of hearing. So that when you once used to enjoy the singing of people, and now that the singing and the notes, you can't hear that as well. You don't enjoy that as much. You don't hear the daughter singing softly and quietly like you once to, and to enjoy that. They sing quietly and softly now, and you can't hear it. You can't make that out. It's not as pleasant as it used to be. You could be describing that. Other people think that Solomon there is describing the vocal cords. <clears throat> right? So when, when we get to be older, our voices don't carry as much as they used to. We have... Uh, I can think of some elderly gentlemen that taught in my Bible college. The older that they got, the more their voices began, began to crack and almost become wheezy. Um, they, they were, I was told that back before that happened that they could project their voice, like I'm able to project my voice, and it would be loud and bombastic, and they could preach to these massive audiences without any kind of amplification. But as age comes in, you begin to speak softly and more quietly. And it's not because you don't have enough to say or much to say. It's just because you, you can't project your voice. Now you try and raise your voice and you start to gasp and choke and catch your breath. And it takes you a, a day to recover from trying to yell at somebody. That's the daughters of song, the vocal cords. They start to sing softly. Not quite what they once were. That's the effect of age. Verse 5. Furthermore, men are afraid of a high place and terrors on the road. What was once high to me, sorry, what was once low to me is no longer low to me. And you become afraid of high places. There was a time when my rule for pruning the trees in my yard was if I could stand on the very top of my seven-foot stepladder and reach my hands all the way to the top and still pick cherries, that was the height that I wanted it. No longer. Now I'm starting to lower that down. Every year I cut more and more off. Pretty soon my cherries are going to be only those things that I can pick by standing on the on the ground because it get, the little things get higher and higher. So you, you get to be older and you think to yourself, I don't get up on a, I'm not going to get up on a, a ladder and clean out my gutters anymore. That could be the end of my life. When you're young, you don't think that way. When you're young, you think I get up on a roof, I get up and clean out my gutters, I climb a tree, I do anything tall, it doesn't matter to me. There's no height doesn't scare me. But then you start to get older and standing on a chair to change a light bulb. Are you kidding me? I'm going to call the grandkids and have them come over and change the light bulb. You don't want to do that because you're scared of those heights and you're scared of terrors on the road. When you're young, you, you never think of, of what it means to go out. You, you, just, you just go out and you, you don't worry about what you might encounter on the road, what might happen to you while you're out. You start to get older, you need to make plans for that. Um, suddenly when you're, you're, you're older, stepping across a rock or, or a root in the middle of the path, that's entirely different than it was when you were younger, isn't it? You don't think about going and hiking and running up an embankment or jumping over logs or going out through the woods like you once did. That has to come to an end. Why? Because you're afraid of terrors on the road. Things that never would have terrorized you, you never even would have thought of when you were young. You get to be older and suddenly these things are deal breakers. I can't do that because of this. Solomon is being honest here about the effects of growing old and what it is like and what it means for us. The almond tree blossoms. Almond trees turn white when they blossom. So what does this refer to? Yeah, my hair, right? Whiter, grayer than it used to be. That's the almond tree blossoming. The grasshopper drags himself along. There's something of a translation issue with that phrase because in the King James it says the grasshopper is a burden. And so the, the idea here is that something is dragging itself along as if it is burdened. And so it could be, it could be referring to the idea that the grasshopper is a burden. You take something that is light and simple and easy, and suddenly even the light things become a burden when you're older. You can't carry what you used to. You can't lift what you used to. You're as physically able as you used to be, and so even light things become a burden. 
Right? You get winded playing chess. Or it could refer to the idea that the grasshopper, which once had a spring in its step, and used, you know, grandma who used to dart about in the kitchen between the refrigerator and the stove and the sink and back and forth, and she would prepare everything in 20 minutes and have an, a magnificent Thanksgiving meal ready in 20 minutes' time. Now it takes her four hours to do the same amount of work. Why? Because she doesn't spring about like she used to. Your get up and go has got up and went, left you behind. There's no spring left in your step. The grasshopper, which once used to spring quickly from place to place, now drags itself along. Right? You use a walker, you use a cane, you're slower, you don't go anywhere unless you have a railing or a wall that you can lean up against and hold yourself up. That's the effects of old age. The grasshopper drags himself along and the capperberry is ineffective. What is that? The capperberry was an ancient aphrodisiac. It was used to enhance things that needed to be enhanced. And I'll listen to all the voices in my head that are screaming at me to stop, and we'll just drop that right there. <laughs> the capperberry no longer works. This is disturbing for a man who had a thousand women at his beck and call. The capperberry doesn't work anymore. In other words, he is describing normal bodily functions that no longer function like they once used to function. And this is the deterioration of old age. So he says in verse 6, or verse 5, for man goes to his eternal home while mourners go about in the street. When he talks about an eternal home, he's not, he's not hinting at eternity here. I don't think that the afterlife is what is in view for Solomon, whether eternal hell or eternal, eternal heaven. I think that he is simply here describing the permanence of death. Man goes to the permanent state of death. And mourners go about in the street, and they mourn him. Now in verses 1 to 5, he is describing their old age and the days in which we live and the effects of old age and the deterioration and the diminishment of physical capacity and mental capacity. And quite honestly, we could probably add a few more poetic characteristics or poetic descriptions of our own. I thought of a few, and I think it would be clever if somebody sort of expanded upon Solomon's thought here. I, I thought, what if we were to take some of the modern verbiage that we use and do what Solomon does with it here? We might say that we would remember our Creator in the days of our youth before the hinges begin to squeak. What would that refer to? My elbow pops. Like every time I do this, my elbow pops. That shoulder squeaks like that. Or the hinges rust close. That could be used to describe arthritis. Remember your creator before the, the paintings on the wall begin to fade. That would describe the memory, right? The images that we have that after a time are no longer there. Remember our creator before the fire goes out in the furnace or the fireplace. What would that describe? Growing old and suddenly everywhere you go, you're cold. You used to be warm everywhere you went. You used to walk around like Ed in the middle of winter in shorts and a t-shirt, <laughs> never thinking to cover yourself up at all. But now, now you have to bundle up in, in long johns in every month except July and August because you're always cold. The fire has gone out. Right? These are all poetic ways of describing the deterioration of our outward physical frame. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, our outer man is perishing. It's rotting away. From the moment that we are born, we begin to die. And our body, as much as it might look fit and look, look of, of, of full of vigor and ability and capacity, it is from the moment that we are conceived on a never-ending and inalterable trajectory with death. And so we begin to decay the moment we are conceived. And every moment of every day is a fight against that decay. And some days it's more vivid than at others, but every day it's a fight against that curse. Our outward man is perishing. 
But then, as if it weren't discouraging enough to read all of that, we still have to go through verses 6 to 8, which describe our death in equally poetic terms. I know, we're almost done. Verse 6, are you glad we got this over in one Sunday instead of two? Verse 6, remember him before the silver cord is broken. I want you to notice that there are four poetic analogies here that are used to describe death. The silver cord is broken, the golden bowl is crushed, the pitcher by the well is shattered, and the wheel at the cistern is crushed. Those are the four analogies. Now, some commentators or, or students of Scripture kind of group all of these into one analogy, and they say all of this is describing one thing. <coughs> and, of course, we would say it's all describing one thing, that is death. But it's a picture of one, one thing. And so they would say that the, let me see if I can remember here, the silver cord is the, the, the string or the cord that would go around the wheel down into the cistern to draw water. The golden bowl would be the bowl next to the cistern that you would pour the drawn water into to take it back home. The pitcher by the well would be the pitcher that is attached to the silver cord that is lowered into the cistern. And the wheel, of course, is the wheel itself that you would spin in order to raise and lower a bucket into a cistern to fetch water. So they would say this is a picture of every element of water being drawn, being crushed and destroyed. The, the, the wheel is broken, has fallen down into the cistern, the, the cord is snapped, the bowl is crushed, the pitcher is destroyed. All of it. Others would break this up and, and they would say that Solomon is here describing two different pictures of our death. The one being the first two analogies, the silver cord and the golden bowl. The silver cord would be the, the string that held or the silver cord that would hang a bowl that would be filled with oil and a wick that would give light in a house. And if that silver cord was broken and that bowl fell down and got crushed, then the light would go out. There would be no more light. It would be returning again to this this idea of darkness that he described earlier in the passage. And then they would say that the second two analogies describe the cistern and the well, that you have the, the pitcher by the well that is crushed and the wheel that turns that lowers that pitcher down into the well to draw the water, that is broken. In both of these examples, in both of the analogies, you have a picture of what it means for life to end. Right? Light is often in Scripture associated with life. We talk about the light of life. Water in Scripture and the necessity of it is often a picture of life as well. So this is, whether you're describing light or whether you're describing water, it is the complete and unchangeable and unfixable, irreparable damage and destruction of human life. And I want you to notice what all of these things have in common. First, all of these analogies picture something valuable being finally and fully destroyed. Silver colored, the golden broken, or the golden bowl, the pitcher, the wheel, all of these things are necessary for life. They're pictures of life. They're something precious, something valuable, silver and the gold being crushed and ruined. This is something that is valuable being destroyed, and that is a, a great picture of human life. Human life is precious. It is valuable. Death destroys that. Death is the enemy that destroys that. Second, it is this destruction is complete and total and irreparable. It's not, it's not that the, the pitcher is cracked. It's not that the, the wheel is chipped that these things are totally destroyed, totally ruined. It is the complete end of, death is the complete end of usefulness. It is the complete end of existence in this realm. It is the final and irreparable ruin of what we are. That is why in verse 7 he describes here, and, and what we are in this world, that is why in verse 7 he describes death in these terms, then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. You remember that this is this is returning back to the analogy or the picture of original creation. God created Adam out of the dust of the earth, and then he did what? Breathed into him the breath of life. Notice that what Solomon describes here in our death in verse 7 is the complete reversal of that. God created Adam out of dust and breathed into him the death of life. Death is the undoing of that. 
Death is the spirit returning to God who gave it and the body returning to the elements. And when Solomon speaks of dust here, when scripture describes us as dust, it is emphasizing and reminding us of the human weakness that we are but dust. Psalm 103 verse 14 says, He himself knows our frames and he is mindful that we are but dust. When you speak of man being dust, and, and that's what Solomon is saying, he doesn't even, doesn't even use the word body, he just returns to the dust. The dust will return to the earth as it was. And he's just speaking of us in terms of our weakness and our frailty and our inability and this complete disillusion. When the spirit leaves it, the body is just nothing but elements. It's nothing but a collection of elements. There's oxygen there and nitrogen there and there's carbon dioxide there. It just becomes something that goes right back into the dirt from whence it came. Death is the complete undoing of every one of us as individual creations of God. That is why it's the enemy. That's why it's the enemy. And so Solomon comes back at the end to verse, in verse 8 to where he started this book. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. Again, for Solomon, death is this specter that hangs over everything. As he's described life, no matter what he has talked about in life, whether it is our possessions, our pleasures, our purposes, our enjoyments, our entertainments, our basic provisions, whether it is our work and our toil or our family or our inheritances, no matter what Solomon has described, knowledge, wisdom, all of it, death has been the specter that hangs over all of it, that threatens to render all of it vanity and emptiness and uselessness and futility. Death is the thing that he kept coming back to again and again. He couldn't get away from it. And now at the end of the book, he comes back to the finality of death, and he says, vanity of vanities, it's all usefulness and emptiness. Now, it wouldn't be right to leave you on that note. And so I would leave you with two things to encourage you as we've gone through this, and you probably need desperately a little bit of encouragement. What I want you to know, is, first of all, is how graciously and respectfully Solomon has described old age. You say, that doesn't sound graceful and respectful at all. Now, I think it is. Solomon is not disparaging the aged. In our culture, in our world, we want to take the aged, or at least our culture wants to take the aged and sort of push them off into the shadows and forget about them. Put them in a home, put them out there, euthanize them once they have ceased being practical and useful for our purposes. It's a completely utilitarian approach. Just push them off to the side and forget about them. Wait till they're gone and they split up their stuff and we can live our lives. That's our culture's approach to old age. That ought not to be the approach of the church. I'm, I, I delight, and I always have, in seeing a congregation in which we have all, all ages here. We have children, we have teenagers, we have elderly people who are here. This, this delights me. I, I get disturbed when I walk into a church and all I see is young people. That disturbs me. I get disturbed when I walk into a church and all I see is old people. To get the other side of that. But to have a mixture where we honor the aged among us and we respect those who have gone before and we see gray hair as a mark of wisdom, something to be honored and cherished and loved and respected and cared for and sympathized with, and to come alongside people who are in our congregation, who are older and going through the dark days that Solomon describes here, that's something that we should cherish. That's something we should love. It's something we should enjoy doing and to cherish those who are older than, than we are. So I, I appreciate the way in which Solomon is very respectfully and in a very honoring way spoken of, of life and of growing old and of dying. Because go, growing old and, and aging and facing death, let's be honest, it is one of the most difficult things we will ever endure in life, right? It is one of the most challenging things that we have to deal with in all of our lives is getting older and watching as one by one the physical abilities, the mental abilities that we once cherished and took for granted begin to be taken from us by age. That's challenging. That's one of the most painful things to observe in watching somebody else go through it and even in facing it ourselves. The Bible is very honest about death. And we've talked a lot about it in Ecclesiastes. 
The Bible is honest about the reality of death. But we know something about life and death that Solomon did not know. Because Solomon did not have the revelation of God in the person of Christ. He did not have the New Testament. And it's not that the New Testament contradicts the Old Testament. The New Testament completes the Old Testament. So we know something because of what Christ has done that Solomon never knew. He didn't have the perspective that we have. And so we can approach life and, be, uh, and death and be honest with it. And we can say, look around you, every person in this room, unless the Lord should return, every person in this room is eventually going to die. Every last one of us. A hundred years from now, this church is going to look a lot different than it looks today. Because every one of us is going to die. So we can be honest about that. And we can say that it doesn't do us any good to deny it. It doesn't do us any good to ignore it. We, we can face it with honesty, understanding that Scripture addresses this issue. And we know as believers that though our outward man perishes, our inward man is being renewed day by day. I know that though this body of death will perish, and it is decaying right before your eyes, just as your body is decaying right before my eyes, that that is not the end. I will grow old, but I will not stay old. You will die, but you will not stay dead. You will die physically, but you will never die spiritually. Because the Bible has promised us a resurrection. Jesus said in John chapter 6, verses 37 through 40, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given to me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. God has promised to those of us who are in Jesus Christ that though we will die, we will not stay dead. There's coming a day on that morning when this perishable will put on the imperishable and this mortal will put on immortality. And then shall come about the saying that is written, O death, where is your sting? Where is your victory, O death? For the believer, death is not the end of it. For the believer, death is the entryway to life. We have to shed this body of death. And when it is done and when it is gone, more power to it. Because though now we can say that the mighty men tremble, the warriors stoop, let the almond tree blossom, let the doors be shut, let the windows grow dim, why should we care about that? Today, we try to sleep and a bird awakens us. But eventually from our sleep, we will awaken at the sound of the trumpet, the voice of the archangel, and a shout, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. And therefore, we can comfort one another with those words. Let's bow our heads. Father, you are so gracious and so kind to give us hope that is beyond this life. We have nothing in this world that we ought to cling to that is worth anything that we await in the next. We pray that you would help us to be mindful of these things and keep them near to our hearts. That as we watch our outward man perish day by day, that we may delight in and cherish Jesus Christ and what he has done to deliver us from these bodies of death. We long for that day when we shall be clothed with our dwelling from on high, when this perishable will put on the imperishable, and this mortal will put on immortality. And we shall rise triumphant from the grave and stand before you, blameless and faultless before your throne with exceeding joy. We look forward to that day, and we thank you for it. We thank you for that hope. Make us confident of these truths, and make us to live in light of them for the glory of Christ our Lord and our King. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.